Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Jason Coleman, and you are listening to Things That Make You Go Hmm Book Review Podcast. And welcome to another episode of Things That Make You Go Hmm Book Review Podcast. I am your one-man book club, Jason Coleman. Thank you so much for joining me once again for one of my book reviews. Well, I'm not even, I'm not completely sure that these are even book reviews per se. I, I think this is kind of much more of an opportunity for me to read a book and then just explain to you how the book filters through my mind. And if you're new to the show, then what I basically do is I I read a book and then I just mostly books uh, almost exclusively that deal with uh, nonfiction, self-help, politics, behavioral psychology, stuff like that. And I think the whole reason why I read these books is to just to get a better understanding of myself and how I exist in the world and you know, what improvements I can make to, you know, um, to just understand the world a little bit better, understand myself a little bit better, and just get a better perspective of all things. So today's book we're going to be talking about is Solve for Happy by Mo Galwalt. And I think in order for this book to really make sense to you, I should probably go into a little bit of background information about who Mo Galwalt is. So apparently this guy is a very high-level programmer, engineer with Google. Um, I believe he lives full-time in Egypt, but he says he spends a lot of time in the United States and other places around the world, uh, you know, when he's he's working with Google and doing other things. So, of course, you know, he. I think this book was not something that was necessarily a money-making venture for him. It was probably much more about trying to... Um, give his perspective uh, to the world. So here's the situation with him. Um, he, like I said before, he was uh, he was a very successful stock trader before he started working for Google. Um, he said that you know he's made literally millions of dollars uh, working, um, you know, with his jobs in, in Google and his stock trading career and stuff like that. And he just said he always felt a bit unfulfilled and, and he wasn't sure why and and I I know it's kind of more of the oh gosh I'm I'm rich so feel bad for me uh kind of thing it's I I know how and at least for me maybe you're different but I my automatic assumption is you know once you have a few million dollars in the bank you you lose the right to complain about anything but what he was saying is that you know it's kind of easy to judge a book by its cover in that situation but you should probably know, and I think this was a big driver for him wanting to write this book, is um, he actually experienced a very, very tragic death in his family. His, I want to say his, his 20 or 21-year-old son um, got some sort of, uh, needed some sort of routine uh, surgical procedure, and the doctors made a, a critical error when... Um, and they punctured some artery and he started internal bleeding and, and he wound up dying. And it, would, it all happened within a few hours. And he was in perfect health uh, right up until that, that point in time. And him and his, and he, and 
And the ghost of his son, I, I really think, flows throughout this book. And he talks a lot about the grief and misery and the anger that he had. And his son apparently was a really extraordinary person, just extremely friendly, um, never really cared much about himself, always gave everything he had to other people. Um, he said that he had his son when he was very young, so they kind of grew up together almost as siblings. And he said that, you know, the grief that he had was it was just unmanageable. And so that's kind of what drove, I believe that's what drove him to to write this book um, to help other people not necessarily deal with specifically the grief of death, although I definitely think that it's applicable in that respect, but just more about um, how to understand uh, our own happiness. And because he is a computer engineer, he does give a a mathematical formula. I think it was something like... um, like five seven three or something and it has I, I don't I don't exactly remember I probably should have taken better notes but it has something to do with um, perceptions of yourself perceptions of others uh, something to that effect but I think the the most important thing to to really take away from the book he really talks about in the first couple chapters and and that is that People, people's default state is is happiness, and we we tend to feel that if we are unhappy, then we're always unhappy. Um, and I know that that that's just not true. Um, he, he talk he uses the examples of babies, and he says if you think about a baby, for example, um, sure, sometimes they're crying. Sometimes they're cranky. Sometimes they want to be changed. Sometimes they want to eat. But most of the time, probably 90% of the time, they're just mostly happy, content, you know, exploring, thinking, wondering, babbling, okay? And he says that's mostly how humans are. And and I think that I have kind of given that some thought because uh, if, if you don't know, I'm, I'm a public school, I'm a public middle school teacher by trade. So I reference a lot of what I see in my classroom because I guess it's my own laboratory for <laughs> for observation about uh, interactions and people in the world. And I just I just get to interact with like a lot of different people, and I spend a lot of intimate time with people, uh, smaller people, <laughs> throughout the year. And then every year I get a new bunch of smaller people to spend time with. So um, I I think I have a fairly uh, interesting perspective when it comes to to philosophies about things. Um, so anyway, what I was saying is one of my biggest frustrations working as a public school teacher is what we like to say in education is classroom management, meaning basically how to deal with misbehaving students. Um, I would say 90% of any stress I might have at work and, and I'm, I'm lucky that I work in a community now that. I don't have as many behavior problems as I have in the past. I, I have worked in other places where, you know, uh, pretty much, you know, at least half of my day was spent just trying to put out uh, psychological and emotional fires in the classroom. But I, I got to thinking um, about, and I, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, because um, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues, this is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and I go, you know, I, and I was like, oh, you know, Charlie, he's just, you know, for example, Charlie, he's just misbehaving all the time. I never have a moment of peace in that classroom. And my colleague said, is he really misbehaving 90% of the time? 
You mean from the moment he walks into the classroom until the moment he leaves, that 90 minutes you have with him, you're saying for 75-ish minutes, he's misbehaving is what you're saying. And no, probably not. I I would probably say it's probably, you know, the opposite. Probably 90% of the time he's not really misbehaving. He's probably doing what I asked him to do. But the thing is, is that while most students do not give me any behavior problems, Charlie would give me three or four throughout the day. Granted, that's enough to, you know, make you want to jump off a bridge, I assure you, and it can become very stressful. But my perception was inaccurate. Most of the time, even Charlie was doing what he was supposed to be doing. It's just that he had many more outbursts than the average kid would, which allowed me to perceive him as doing something different than what was really happening in reality. And this is really, I think, where the author tries to, he taught, he, He talks a lot about a lot of our own happiness is dependent upon our perspective about how we understand what happiness is. So, for example, um, I watched a really great movie uh, the other night. Fantastic. I really encourage people to watch it called The Florida Project. And uh, what it's about is... It's about this sub-community that gets very, very little media attention in our society because, you know, in America, we just don't feel very comfortable talking about the poor. Uh, I, I don't know. We, we we have a bit of a hate relationship with the poor. I, I think we, on a very superficial level, we want to help them. But whenever our, you know, whenever the rubber meets the road, whenever it's time to actually put our money where our mouth Uh, We tend to turn and run in the opposite direction. So the Florida Project is this story about a a mother and a daughter, mostly, and a couple of their friends who are living in a motel. And they're living in a motel because they don't have a job. They can't get a job. They have no education. Um, They... There just aren't very many opportunities, you know, and so their only housing option is to is to live in this this motel. And even though they are quite literally like on the brink of starving, um, they don't have access to, you know, to income or to food or, to, you know, they there's this little food pantry bus that, you know, comes around and, you know, tries to help feed these people. If you actually look at the kids themselves, and I, these kids range from about seven to, to nine years old, I guess, they they have a lot of freedom, okay? Their parents do not uh, spend a lot of time hovering over them. So they spend most of their day uh, walking around, exploring, um, begging for money to go buy ice cream, um, and just spending time with each other. And they're not they're not unhappy kids. They're really not. They're, they're actually, I mean, yes, there's some cha- there's there's some chaos in these kids' lives, but, but mostly they're happy. Mostly they're just enjoying themselves and being in the moment. I was talking with a, par- a parent, one of uh, one of the parents from my, my school emailed me the other day. And I, I, I don't have her children in my class anymore, but they've, they've moved on to high school. But she emailed me and she said, I don't know what to do about my son. He's in high school now and he, he doesn't do his assignments. He's not motivated. Um, you know, and he just seems very angry. And he was a very happy kid when he was in middle school. I don't know what happened. 
And I was telling her, I, I can't say for sure. I'm not a therapist. I don't know exactly. But I said, you know, I, I went through a similar situation where I just remember being very happy to go to school and being happy to spend time with my friends when I was in middle school. Um, and one thing you should know about me, if you ever see me, is that I'm a, I'm a physically small person. Okay, I'm only about five foot eight, maybe 160 pounds. So I'm, and I was much smaller even when I was in high school. Um, so, you know, because I was physically small, um, because I, you know, my parents didn't really have very much money, um, you know, my position in high school was decided for me pretty quickly, which is, you know, I'm just going to be one of the kids that nobody really thinks about or knows about. Probably the experience that 80% of high school kids have. Um, but all of these things that I became self-conscious of about myself, um, I wasn't aware of in middle school. It didn't bother me. And I've, I've had this conversation with people where, you know, I don't think that being poor is necessarily a problem <laughs> as long as everybody else is poor. But if you're going to have poor people living next to rich people, uh, that's a powder keg for a disaster. So I think that's what the author is really talking about is, you know, what a lot of our happiness is based in, the, you know, this comes a lot from Buddhism and from Stoicism, you know, two things that I've spent a little bit of time studying in my life. That a lot of our own happiness has to deal with our perception with whether or not we think we're happy. And one thing I do appreciate is once you kind of, I, I think Buddhism is is a, I think it's great for anybody to start doing on a surface level, but if you ever kind of want to get into the the deeper sort of nuts and bolts of Buddhism, it gets fairly complicated and difficult to understand. And I, I think that the author breaks down a lot of the tougher concepts, um, you know, for the readers. And he says, you know, a lot of it has to do with our... It's kind of interesting. They talk about this in Buddhism. It's, you know, it's called the monkey brain where you people have this need to you know their mind is constantly racing all over the place and, and it's always looking for for some sort of stimulus and it's very hard to settle it and he said that's kind of where a lot of our problems come from is we we almost think that there that there should be a problem for a situation like i I should be worried about something. Like one of my, one of the jokes I have with the parents is in America, uh, mothers' national pat, the national pastime for American mothers is to worry. Um, I don't know why, honestly. I, I well, I do know why. I know that it. Well, the author explains it pretty well. He talks about in evolution, how, when, okay, in our in our Paleolithic Stone Age days. <clears throat> When you would come across something that could possibly be a dangerous stimulus, let's say um, a rustling in the bushes, you have two thoughts. It's either dangerous or it's not dangerous, meaning it's either, a, you know, I don't know, a cobra <laughs> or it's just the wind rustling the bushes. Now, even though there's probably a 99% chance it's the wind rustling the bushes, there was no... There was no survival benefit advantage to thinking that it was just the wind, whereas there's a pretty huge survival benefit if you think it's a cobra. 
So humans are designed to just be very, very cautious. And I think if we were talking about our tribal, you know, our tribal days, um, that's probably fine for you to think that way because your, you know, your life pretty much just revolved around being able to secure food and shelter in some community. There wasn't really a lot to it. There wasn't a lot to be quote unquote depressed about. But when you take that survival adaption and you apply it to modern day society where we have emotional issues, psychological issues, acceptance issues, hormonal issues, um, it becomes very easy to to obsess and brood over these over these things. So um, in modern day society, you know, we have to be a bit more cautious about how much how much time and how much focus we're giving to the worrying that's personally one of the reasons why i have i've always enjoyed stoicism um and and the author he doesn't name it stoicism but he talks a lot about stoicism and he you know one of the things you got to think about what the stoics would say is how are you how are you viewing the situation at hand um, so for example, like, um, I don't make a lot of money right now. Uh, when I compare myself to, let's say, um, the people who I know who are business owners or physicians or doctors, whatever the case, I don't make a lot of money compared to them. But if you were to take my salary and compare it against the world average, I'm probably in the top 1% of, of wealth earners around the world. So when I say I don't make a lot of money, what am I comparing what am I comparing myself to? And so the Stoics would say, well, how do you how do you want to see this situation? <laughs> um, it's like the, the, the Shakespeare quote, um, things are not good or bad. It's only thinking that makes it so. So the example the author gives is he talks about how um, his daughter apparently would, when when she was a child, she would cry a lot. And he would always feel bad because he, whenever he would go out to dinner and she would start throwing a tantrum and he became very self-conscious because he thought he was ruining everybody else's experience there. And so he says now when he goes out and he hears a baby crying when he's at dinner or whatever the case is, he's able to, as soon as he starts to become annoyed or agitated, he just immediately switches to his thinking about how bad he felt for everybody else, even though his daughter wasn't necessarily bothering him that much, how bad he felt for everybody else. And he realizes that it's just basically sucking energy. And it's not really productive. So another good example the author uses is he talks about how he apparently he's a, a classic car collector. And he was saying that there was a situation where his wife was driving one of his classic cars that he really loved. And she got into an accident where the car was totaled. And he said he wasn't 
angry or depressed or anything. He said he was elated with joy because apparently the airbag worked and, the, you know, um, his wife didn't really suffer any major harm or damage. But he said if the car was parked and it got smashed, he would have been devastated. And so the question is, well, what's the difference? I mean, yes, his wife could have been hurt, but she wasn't. So really, what what the situation is the same, but your outlook on how the events unfolded are completely different. So, you know, that's why the author was saying that a lot of of our happiness is based upon how you see your own situation and how you're, more importantly, how you're choosing to see your own situation. And he gets back to his son and he talks about how, yes, he wants to feel grief still. Yes, he misses him to this day still. Yes, he would love to just have one last hug, one last kiss, one last conversation with his son. But he knows now that no amount of anguish, no amount of heartbreak um, is going to be able to bring him back. And the Stoics talk about this as well when concerning death. Uh, the Stoics talked about death uh, quite extensively. And uh, well, at least Marcus Aurelius did. And what, what they say is that if you can rationally think about what the person would want for you who died, what would it be? Would they want you to be sad all of the time? Or would they want you to enjoy your moments that you have, your very short life that you have on earth? Would they just want you to enjoy that? And I I completely feel that way. Like any loved ones that I have, um, (laughs) I I understand there's going to be some natural human, you know, built-in tendencies for grief, but Seriously, I mean, I I really do hope that people will, after I die, they'll forget about me as soon as possible. If they want to remember me, they'll just remember the happy times that they got to spend with me. Um, You know, in some societies, like the Irish society, in Mexican cultures, they, they approach death much differently. It's not this just sort of, you know, sad, brooding thing. I mean, they actually have holidays where they celebrate the dead. Um... Even in my wife, uh, her family, who's from Vietnam, they have, um, you know, they have these little, uh, I don't, I don't know what to call them, shrines uh, within their home where they they put up um, pictures and monuments to their relics, to their uh, to their deceased relatives. And you know, a couple times out of the year, they just sit back and reflect on, you know, on the overviews a lot of other philosophies that I've tried to incorporate in my life, and he sort of combines them all together in a way similar to, I think, the way the author Ryan Holiday does too. Um, I I probably will not be able to give you another podcast for a few weeks. We're going to celebrate our Thanksgiving weekend, our Thanksgiving week here in the United States, um, in uh, the week after the next, which is when I would normally do my next podcast. So... If you get bored and you feel like you want to listen to another one of my episodes, please just, I think I have over 50 of them again. Um, you'll still get something out of it. I still listen to some of my own book reviews still just to kind of remind me of, of some of the, the knowledge that the authors are trying to find. Uh, until we talk again, happy. Happy.